0: Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, to set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we come to you now and ask that you would open our eyes. Every one of us has some darkness that we're stumbling through, some uncertainty, some things that we don't understand. And by trying to ignore it or minimize it, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring us to anything greater or, or, or better or, cla- or greater clarity. And so I pray today that, that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts, that scales that might be blinding us might fall off. You would help us to see what your Word has for our own hearts and set our own eyes more fully on Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing a series today in the Gospel of John. So, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to me with me to, to John chapter nine. We're going to cover a big section today, but in pieces. Uh, John, as we begin though, as we head into this passage, I couldn't help but think of John Newton. John Newton was born in 1725 and lived to 1807. Um, Some of you may know his story, some of you may not. So a little bit about him. After serving in the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy, he became involved as a sailor in the Atlantic slave trade. And he was known as a sailor for being kind of like, he was among slave traders, which is not, as you might imagine, that there wasn't a reputation for that being the most calm and upright and straight-laced group of people. But he was known for writing poems that made fun of his own captain um, and for being a favorite among his crew because of that. In 1748, though, when he was around 23 years old, his ship got caught in a storm just off the coast of County Donegal in Ireland, and it was so bad that he remembers falling to his knees on deck on the ship and crying out, Lord, have mercy on us. Well, he continued for some time in the slave trade, but started studying theology, started studying God's word because he felt a responsibility to explore this God he had cried out to who did, in fact, save him from that storm. By 1757, he had applied for ordination in the Church of England, but it took seven years to complete it. But his conversion changed John Newton. He retired from the slave trade and realized that he could not square what he had done with his life with the realities that Jesus had called him to. And in 17, he became an avid abolitionist. He worked with a man named William Wilberforce to eventually and successfully end slave trade in Britain. But in 1772, he wrote a hymn that was published in 1779, and you likely have heard it. The opening stanza of, of this hymn says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Today's text brings us to the story of a man who was born blind and his encounter with Jesus. What we'll see in the story is that the the, the nature of an encounter with Jesus is that people who once were blind come away with sight, that though we once were blind, now we see. But that's not for everyone that some in an encounter with Jesus go farther into darkness and blindness. And so again, we're gonna take this in pieces because it's 41 verses long today. And I think you'll see, we're gonna look at four sections and we'll see four truths about who Jesus is and what he does in us and for us today. And so we'll begin in chapter nine, verses one to seven. And it says this, as he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind and Jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of god might be displayed in him we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work as long as i am in the world i am the light of the world and having said these things he spit on the ground and made mud with the, with the saliva And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I don't know if we'll do that all four times. I didn't really think that part through. <laughs> we'll see how this goes today. All right. Now, as we step into this, don't forget the purpose of John's gospel. John wrote this all this stuff down so that he would introduce us to Jesus. And he says toward the end, he says, all of this was written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we need to keep our eyes on that. It's tempting as we step into into sections like this, and especially longer stories, we see like we're going to see a progression here. Of the blind man's response to Jesus versus the disciples and the crowd and the the Pharisees. And all of it is fascinating to dig into and fascinating to try to untangle. And we're going to do some of that. But it's also possible for us to get caught up in secondary characters and reactions and, and lose the, the reality that this is trying to show us something about Jesus. So I want to be careful today to be able to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, that we might see him more clearly, like this blind man ended up seeing him more clearly, and keep him the main thing, because the main thing in this passage and in all of Scripture, it is always all about Jesus. But as we go, we're going to see this evidence that Jesus is both Christ and Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the rightful King. And John has been clear since the very beginning of his gospel, since verse 1, that he is God in the flesh. And so as we, as we see this, we, I mean, right in the first seven verses, the miracle has already been performed. The sign has been performed. There are seven signs in John's gospel. And so this is um, just the, which one is this? This is the sixth of the seven. So we've already seen that Jesus turned water into wine at Cana. We saw that he cleared the temple and said that he is the true temple. We saw him heal the official's son and heal the man who had been crippled for 38 years on the Sabbath. We saw him feed the multitude and feed the 5,000 men and the multitude that were with them. And so now we see him heal a man that was born blind. Now, over the last couple of chapters, we've seen Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's been in Jerusalem, and he's been in debates with religious leaders who were still upset about the cripple that he healed who had been crippled for 38 years and they were still upset because he'd healed him on the sabbath and so they were still looking for ways to arrest and kill jesus and and that's in the context here he's leaving jerusalem it's he was headed out because the last day the feast had ended and on his way out it's almost like jesus was like hey one last thing before i go I'm just gonna see how this rolls and so we we see in this passage kind of a weird thing right like they come across this man who, has been, who had been blind since birth. This seemed to be, and we'll see that it is, this was a known thing about this guy. It wasn't that it was an accident that caused blindness, it wasn't a disease that had caused blindness. He had never seen in his whole life. And it was known about him. We see that because the disciples start to have a little theological debate amongst themselves, right? They, they start to say, like, hey, rabbi, teacher to Jesus, uh, whose fault is this? Who sinned? Was it him? Was it his parents? Like, how how did he get this way? They were reaching for an explanation of what they were seeing and for this man's condition. And Jesus corrected them and decided to restore the man. And so, four truths about Jesus today. With each one, we're going to see the reactions of the blind man contrasted with reactions of others in the text. First, Jesus is the light of the world. This isn't new in John. We just saw this, this um, last day of the feast began with Jesus saying in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this is Jesus saying that it, who He is, and again this is echoes of what we heard in John chapter one, as Jesus said, as it was said that that He was the light and the life of men, and that light broke into the darkness, but darkness cannot overcome it. And so Jesus is the light, not just to those who considered themselves God's chosen people, but to the entire world. And that shapes everything that's happening. And really, what we get here, where Jesus has been teaching on this reality that he is the light of the world, it's almost like he, not almost like, he actually gave then a living, tangible illustration of the truth that he had been proclaiming. And so this was his claim about who he is and what his identity is. And so now he he reinforces it by coming to this man who had been blind his whole life and lived his life in darkness. Because blindness is literally darkness. It says in Matthew six, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's the way that light is let in. But here it's clearly, there's something going on again, which we see throughout the gospels and throughout Jesus's ministry that, that there are layers to what's happening. And he's not, it's not just physical blindness, but we're also seeing a reality of spiritual blindness and darkness as well. And so Jesus defends the guy. I like that he, it's, it's amazing that he begins by saying, listen, this guy didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. His physical condition and the realities he's dealing with in his life aren't just the result of sin. There's something else going on here. They were flat wrong in their assessment of him. And, and so he says, you guys have missed this. They, were, they, had, they had wrongly assessed the spiritual condition of this man and his parents and said that the physical reality was not working of it. This is the same thing that we see in Job. As his, as God. Cho- we get like a, a look behind the cosmological curtain in Job, and it t- t- tells the story of Satan coming to God and saying, no one in this world actually loves you and is actually righteous. And it's God who says, hey, have, have you thought about him? <laughs> and so... He gives Satan the ability and the freedom to destroy Job's surroundings and his family without actually killing him. And he's in terrible suffering. He loses everything he has. He's in mourning and lament. And the people around Job are trying to do the same thing of saying, where did you mess this up? Why, why has God done this to you? There's got to be a cause to it. And we think this way. That when we look at our own lives, when things go badly for us in, in what's happening immediately today or this week, we have a tendency when things go badly to say like, God, what's going on? And we, start, we might start looking like, what, maybe God's trying to teach me a lesson or maybe, maybe this suffering came because of some result of sin and I just haven't found it. And we, we get like the cause and effect in, in what's happening in our lives and, and we forget that we live in a broken world and sometimes suffering just comes. It's not necessarily the result of sin. Now, if you have something that you know you did wrong and you're suffering the consequence of it, then, yeah, confess that and repent. But otherwise, we don't know what's happening. We don't know the reasons behind things, and we likely won't ever know the reasons behind things, and that's hard. Jesus here, though, says that's not reality. This guy was actually born this way for God's glory. So it's the opposite of everything that everybody assumed. Everybody assumed this is the result of his sin or his parents' sin, and Jesus says, no, 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 this is so that God can be more glorified. And then he goes on, he says, okay, we've got to do the works of the one who sent me, so he's the sent one, and night is coming when no one can work. And that's, that feels a little bit ominous, doesn't it? By the way, night is coming, but while I'm here, I'm the light of the world. Where does that leave us now? I looked into this, and there are layers of meaning that of the, to this. The best I can tell, there's, there's a potential of, of a number of different things, and I think it's probably a combination of them. It could be referring to the time of darkness after Jesus was crucified, when he was laid in the grave, before he was resurrected, that it was a period of darkness and uncertainty. But I think it's more than that, because then you keep reading into Acts, and you realize that there was a period of, of, of several weeks That Jesus had ascended to heaven and been glorified, and that the Holy Spirit had not yet come on the followers of Jesus, and so that they were in darkness, and they were locked up in a room waiting and scared. And then the Spirit came on them in power. But I also think there's a level to which he's talking about the people that he's been interacting with in Jerusalem. Because he's been saying up to this point, hey, I'm going to a place, and where I'm going, you can't follow me. And they're like, what does that mean? Like, where are you possibly going that we can't follow you? And at first they're like, is he going to a physical place that way? Then, they, then they, he says it again, and they're like, is, he gonna, is this guy suicidal? Like, is, he, is there something wrong here? And then he says it again, and they say, you have a demon? Like they, and so over and over again, this has been something that Jesus has said, even in this immediate context. And I think it's probably a combination of those realities. But we need to understand here that Jesus claiming to be the light of the world means that he is the only one who can break through the darkness, That means he is the only one in this world who can save us. And in this world filled with darkness, any other light that we do see is reflections of the shards of God's glory in his image and likeness of others. But Jesus is the light and the light of life. And so in each of these four truths, again, we see a human response. And so, so here you have the response of the blind man versus everyone else, and here it's the disciples that we see first. And so let's look at that, and then we'll continue on. But in this... My hope is that for every one of us, we'll be a little bit honest with ourselves today, that we'll be able to see that there's something of the spiritual darkness within our hearts and that there's some kind of reality there that that we need to be aware of and shine light into. But also, my hope is that you'll be encouraged and that your heart will be drawn toward the response we see in the man who was born blind. In case it isn't obvious already, he's the one that we want to look like in this this story, not the others that we're going to see. And so the disciples here, they think they see, but they don't. The blind man can't see anything physically, and he's the only one that sees things truly. The, the disciples here have a view that carries through that we see the crowd then reflect, then we see the Pharisees pick it up, that they were convinced that there was an individual sin that was an explanation for this man's physical condition. That either he somehow sinned in the womb, which I don't know how theologically you get to that. Like, I don't know how a baby could sin in the womb. It's, you're kind of plugged in still. And so then at that point, you go, well, maybe it's the mom or the dad, maybe his parents sinned, and they're the reason that, that he was born this way. It's, it's, a, it's a consequence for them. And, and there is a reality that these people in this era would have been shamed publicly because the assumption was they had done something wrong that had an impact physically on their son. And so the others, you, we see this in a little bit, that his parents are scared they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue by what's happening here because they were already on thin ice because other people would have made assumptions about this family saying it's the parents, clearly these parents were messed up and so God gave them a consequence of a blind son. But Don Carson here brings a helpful corrective. He says, once theologians, which by the way, if you have any thoughts about God, you are a theologian. So don't, don't think here like, oh, I'm out of this. Once theologians move from generalizing statements about the origin of the human race's maladies, that means when we move from original sin and that every one of us is, uh, it has the result of sin within us. Once we move beyond that to tight connections between the sins and sufferings of an individual, they go beyond the biblical evidence. So we need to take warning here, because it's easy for us to decide how someone got into the condition they're in and to determine their hearts, and that's for God alone. And that mean, this means for ourselves, too. Now again, I think that for many of you, this is something that we, we all know when we wrestle with that with other people, right? When we, when we decide like, oh man, that person's clearly messed up and this is how they got to where they are. But that happens internally, too. That there's, and again, if, if there's something that you've clearly done something wrong and you need to confess it and repent, then do. But it's also the case that often when, when suffering comes into our lives, that, that we begin to look for reasons for that suffering. We'll begin to go into in, internal introspection to try to figure out, like, what did I do that God would do this to me? And you need to hear that you don't have the full picture You don't know why what's happening in your life is happening. You don't know why God allowed it to happen. It could be the product of a broken world. It could be the product of spiritual warfare as Satan comes after you. It could be the product of other people's sin and bad decision. Or it could be that God has done something in you so that he could be more glorified. We don't know where that is, and so we've got to be careful to actually believe that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us and not to be... Job's friends to our own hearts now the blind man here what does he do well Jesus says all right I'm going to push this mud into your eyes (laughs) which I guess he didn't see what was going on (laughs) but that's that's kind of a weird thing too so Jesus spits on the ground rubs it around in the dust puts it across the man's eyes and says all right go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam and so he went and he came back seeing. He obeyed and is cleansed, and he sees. You see, if Jesus is the light of the world, then obedience will bring us closer to that light, more fully committed to that light, to open our eyes to the light that he is. Now, we have to be careful here because as some of you already are like, hold on. I know. Yes, we are saved by Christ alone. We come to faith Or we come to Jesus through faith alone, by grace alone. That's true. And so it's not that obedience will save us or that this man was healed. He wasn't healed by his obedience, right? It it was Jesus who healed him. But did he argue with Jesus here? Like he didn't say like, Jesus, I don't really want to go to Siloam today. I don't know if that's really the water I want to wash in. Like Jesus, I don't I don't know what else you're going to ask me in my life, and so I'm not going to commit to this until I know all, like until I see the contract. Instead, Jesus rubs mud on his eyes and he goes, okay. His obedience allowed him to come into the light that Jesus was drawing his heart into. We know that to, have heal, to be healed in our lives, there's got to be light shed into things. I mean, think about something as simple as a splinter. When's the last time you got a really bad splinter? It, they hurt. And if you just leave it there, it gets worse. Like, have you ever had that where you have one that's really deep, and you're like, ah, I can't deal with this right now, and you just leave it, and then it starts to get swollen and turn red, and then after it turns red, it starts to turn green. <laughs> like, at some point, you've got to get that out of there. And when you take out a splinter, this is actually a role that I have in my house. Is that I, I, I'm the one that usually takes out splinters when somebody gets one. This is a weird thing unless you have kids and you're, and you're like, how often does this happen? More often than you'd think. So... <laughs> But when we take out a splinter, we go to the brightest place possible. It's usually in the bathroom, it has the brightest light, or we'll go into daylight, because you want to be able to see everything clearly, and the more clearly you can see things, the more you can see what needs to happen, and even though it might hurt for a moment, it's better off in the long run to get the splinter out. Obedience and following Jesus doesn't save us, it's Jesus who saves us. But what it does is it brings us into the light so that we can see the things that he is healing in us and obedience will bring us closer to him and it hurts sometimes. But, but here, it, the obedience is in contrast to the blindness of the disciples and the assumptions they're making. And so let's follow Jesus that way. Now, the second truth we see about Jesus is that he was sent to open the eyes of the blind. So it goes on. Now remember, the Pool of Siloam is called, it means sent The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, the blind man, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, but he's like him. (laughs) And he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought, to the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had, been formerly, who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the, his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus claimed repeatedly to be sent by God. That's been all over in this gospel so far. The blind man was told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And, and John tells us here, like, hey, this is an, Ar- an Aramaic or Hebrew word that means sent. So he's giving the readers a little bit of a clue into the meaning of this. And so the pool of Siloam is actually something you can go see now. It's been partially excavated. And, and it's, it was fed by water that was actually through a tunnel that's cut through the mountain that Jerusalem was built on. It's incredible. It's an engineering miracle, really, that King Hezekiah cut this tunnel um, that brought, uh, brought the water from the Kidron Valley through the mountain t- to the protected side of the mountain because it was anticipating the Assyrian uh, invasion. And so when he cut this, it was around 700 BC. And they cut a tunnel and they started from opposite sides of the mountain and the tunnel goes like this and connects in the middle point. I don't know how it happened. I've been in that tunnel. It is something that if you're a man my size is a very interesting 45 minutes. <laughs> because it took about 45 minutes. There's still cold, fresh water flowing through it. In places, it was about shin height. In other places, it was up above my knees. And I spent most of the time like this, <laughs> going through it. So if you, if you ever have the experience, the chance to go, I do recommend you do it. And if you're big, just hope you're not claustrophobic. But this fed into the Pool of Siloam. And so that's where this man went. But, but the Pool of Siloam is also the place that the priests would go to every morning in the Feast of Tabernacles. So for the whole past week... The priests have been going to the same pool with a golden jug to bring water up to the temple as a reminder of God's provision of water in the wilderness. And so that's the place that Jesus sends him. There are connections with this word, Salome, in Genesis and Isaiah, and there is an expectation in Isaiah 35 that God's work, when he would restore his people, what it would look like to come into the messianic age is that the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk. And so Jesus is bringing that restoration in front of these people, but do you see the detail that John throws in in verse 14? Did you catch it? Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. What have they been mad at him about? Healing the crippled guy on the Sabbath. So he spends a week in theological debate with these leaders, and then is like, oh, it's the Sabbath again. Let me stop here. He was making some good trouble. And so, it, this, it's, it's, so here we see this, but we, what we see is that Jesus is the true sent one from God. He is the Messiah that fulfills all of the expectation and prophecy, and he was doing it right in front of God's people, and they still missed it. They still were blind to it. In fact, to the point that the crowd is saying, like, well, this isn't the guy. Well, it just looks like him. And he's like, no, it's me, I've been here my whole life. But Jesus is the true sent one from God who came to open the eyes of the blind and bring spiritual illumination. Without Jesus opening our eyes, we will never see God's true light. Now the crowd and the Pharisees here question God's work. That's their response. They have a guy in front of them who's been blind his whole life and they're so convinced of the way that God works that they cannot believe that this could be God's work. And so they question it. Like, again, the crowd, like, this can't really be him. And when, they, when he says, no, I am the man, and they say to him, then how are your eyes opened? <laughs> like, okay, you were born blind. How do you see now? That's their only, only like, proof and the Pharisees here, they go on to say in the next verse, they, they say to him, they ask him, you know, how did this happen? He said, he put mud in my eyes. And he said, this man isn't from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. They're like, look at this. Again, he's healing on the Sabbath. Clearly, this man is not from God. And so they have such a grid on what the Sabbath meant and how God would work and what God would do, that when Jesus came, God in the flesh, and worked outside of their expectations, their only move was to dismiss it, to question it, to be cynical about it, to deny it, and to go further into spiritual blindness and miss God's work in front of them. The more we are caught in darkness, the more likely we are to question God's work, To disobey God's word, to deny his work in front of us because it doesn't fit our expectations, and to deny the healing work that God does in people's lives, eventually denying that Jesus is actually sent from God. But the blind man, what does he do? He has a clear testimony. "I, I don't care what you guys think, I know what happened. And he's been consistent and short so far. You ask me how it happened? Well, this guy put mud in my eyes. And I washed it, and now I see. I love that they ask him, like, where is, where is he? Because the blind guy would be like, I have never seen him. <laughs> how do you expect me to identify him in a crowd? You could hear his voice, but I mean, he, didn't, he had never seen Jesus in his, in his life because Jesus came and healed him, but he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he wasn't around Jesus when his eyes were restored. And I, I'm always fascinated by this, like, like did, did he, like, wash and it just instantly was 2020 vision, or did, like, he wash and it's, like, when you wake up in the morning and you've got crust in your eyes still and you, like, kind of can't see clear? Like, we don't, I don't know. That's completely irrelevant to the text. <laughs> But this, this guy has a simple and clear testimony that he knows who Jesus is because he had impacted his life so clearly. And, his te- and this is the, what we need to see is that in the way that the light breaks through the darkness of our questioning cynical hearts is by clear testimony of God's work that becomes undeniable. Testimony is what undoes the darkness of our cynicism and disbelief. Hearing our others and our own and it's for us, it's, it's tragic because God is constantly working in our lives. You would not be sitting here today. Your heart would not be beating. Air would not fill your lungs. You would not be able to have ears to hear God's word read to you today if it wasn't for Jesus sustaining every moment and breath and a beat of your heart. And then we look at our lives and we're like, I've never seen a miracle. God is working Constantly. It's a matter of whether we have the eyes to see it and recognize it, and then bearing testimony is just calling it out. Like, I think for those of you that grew up in the church, you look at some testimonies of people that became Christians as adults and, like, have dramatic testimonies, and you, and you have a, this sense of, like, well, I don't have a real testimony. Nonsense. Anytime God is at work in our lives and we tell others about it, you're bearing witness to God's glory, and that brings light into darkness, this is why one of the, my favorite things we do as a church is if you come to one of our members' meetings, and any, non-members are always welcome to come and sit in our members' meetings with us, which I know you're, if, you're probably like, cool, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> fun, a church business meeting. Like the thing we want to avoid most in life. But ours are fun. <laughs> we spend the whole opening section of it praying together, but by hearing people stand up and bear witness about how they've seen God at work over the last few months. Why? Because that opens our eyes to the ways God is working that are beyond what we have eyes to see. And by hearing that testimony of God's faithfulness and his glory, it opens our eyes and and helps push back disbelief and cynicism. So Jesus is the light of the world. He was sent to open the eyes of the blind. And third truth about Jesus that we see in the text is that Jesus does work that we don't expect through people we don't accept. I want you to hear that again because this is a long section. Keep this in mind as I read it. Jesus does work we don't expect through a people we don't accept. Now here we go. You ready? So he says to the Pharisees, he put but in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews didn't believe that he had been born blind (laughs) and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man Who had received his sight, and asked them, "Is this your son, who you who you say was born blind? How then does he now see?" And his parents answered, "We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself." His parents knew these things, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know That though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Pharisees put the man on trial for regaining his sight. And he didn't back down. And he spat theological truth right back at him. Like the boldness that this guy had after being a blind beggar his whole life. He walks in and for the first time in his life, he is seeing the temple. He is seeing the altar. He is seeing the the glory that had been created by human hands to worship God and standing before the Pharisees, religious leaders, and being pressed on what had happened in him. And his parents are at risk of getting thrown out of the synagogue. They they call him in, and I love that. Like, they defer their son. They're like, he is old enough to defend himself. So they were feeling the pressure of the leaders and so they turned again to this guy, and when they say, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner, this is not saying like, hey, glory to God. What they're saying is, it's not a command about worship, it's more, you are standing in the presence of God, so in God's name, tell the truth. This is him saying, I'm gonna tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's what they're calling him to. It's an assumption that he's clearly holding something back, and so what does the, the man who had been blind do? Do he says, do you want to become his disciples now? Are you convinced? And then he goes on, this is amazing. You can't explain this. You don't know where he came from. You don't, you don't know what, why this is happening. You're calling him a sinner who is, because he's healing on the Sabbath, but he opened my eyes. Now listen, this goes against everything I've been taught. The guy had been listening his whole life. If anybody worships God, then God will listen to him. But, but if God's, God won't listen to sinners. This has never happened in the history of the world. And you're going to say this guy isn't from God? Without God, he could do nothing. And so again here, we've seen the disciples, the crowd, and now more explicitly the Pharisees, they respond in cynicism and pride and again in disbelief. But here it's the pride that stands out most. They reject God's clear work in front of them because it doesn't fit their expectations of what God must do. The man had already been written off. And Jesus was seen as a sinner. So you have one man who was seen as being born into sin, and then Jesus, who was assumed to be a sinner, who was doing damage and a threat to what God had taught them. And, and so that, they had this box of expectations around who God is and how God would work, and that box darkened their own eyes from seeing the immensity and creativity of the Almighty, even when it was right in front of them. They couldn't comprehend that Sabbath is not about keeping the right rules and, not, and restricting our activity, but that Sabbath is about joining God in his restoration of humanity. And so when Jesus was bringing restoration and healing and wholeness, it was outside of their box. And so the response is pride of saying, we are disciples of Moses. We don't know who this guy is. And if you think that we're not prone to that now, and you might be saying, well, like, well we have Jesus, and I, I'm, I, you know, we can say we're disciples of Jesus, we still do the same thing, where we will say, I'm gonna read what's here, and if it doesn't fit, not just, it's not actually standing in contrast to scripture, but it's, if God works in ways that stand in contrast to our expectations that are extra biblical expectations of who God is and what he'll do, we dismiss it because we're too proud of our own theologies and understanding of his word. Now, God will never contradict himself, but he will contradict our wrong understandings of what he's given us. But the blind man, there's no pride in him. Like, he's bold here, but it's not out of pride. He's not trying to show himself above the Pharisees. He's, he's, just, saying, he's just pointing out reality. Like you have no explanation for this. How are we supposed to think about it? And he shows faith and trust because faith undoes our pride. This is true all over the place. Like you you wanna hit your own pride, step into greater vulnerability in relationship. Like this this is one of the things that marriage does. And I know it's not only exclusive marriage, but for me, like nobody sees me more clearly and studies my behavior more consistently than the woman who has lived with me for the last 21 years. (laughs) May is our 21st anniversary, and she's had 21 years to study me and my idiosyncrasies because a lot of my life doesn't make sense. But again, it's not just marriage. That can be, you can step into that vulnerability in friendships in roommate relationships, in church, in your community group. And as we step into vulnerability, it means that we are actually stepping in in a level of faith and trust that people aren't going to do damage when they come in. And that undercuts our pride because it exposes who we are. The man here turns in faith to Jesus. He exposes who he is and makes himself vulnerable. To, he is in a level of vulnerability, not like we think of vulnerability so often as transparency. He has a lot to lose here as he's standing before these, the Pharisees. They could ostracize him, kick him out further. They could, they could do damage to his life. They could end up killing him if they decide he's a heretic. And in the midst of that, he has faith in Jesus and says, like, I don't know what else to say. My eyes have been opened. And his faith undoes the pride that the Pharisees were caught in. Now, it's not blind faith. I, I know that's a funny thing to say here. Well, obviously, it's not blind faith. His eyes were opened. But I think often when we think about faith in, in spirituality, we, we think that way. Like, you just, there's no reason, you just believe. But it's not that. He has evidence of God's work. He has experienced the work of God in history and in his life. And it's what we've seen already, that it's, he has a testimony about what God has done. And he, he, he has obedience, that he's seen God, God bring him closer through obedience. And so in that, it is a simple faith of saying, Jesus did this, and there's no explanation other than he is from God. All right, fourth truth about Jesus is that Jesus invites belief so this is what goes on. The response of the Pharisees is, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now Jesus had heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near heard these things and said to him, Are we so blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here's where we begin to round things out. In this, the passage is closed, and as we see this fourth truth about Jesus, he invites belief. But we also see him flip the categories on the religious leaders again, which he does so often, of saying, hey, you think you see, therefore you're blind. The, one who, the only one in this story who started blind is the only one in the story who actually sees Jesus for who he is. I don't know where the disciples went through all this, because they are not mentioned again. <laughs> But, but here, this, this is what he does. So the only one who sees Jesus, now the Pharisees here, like do you see what they say? You were born in utter sin. That's their explanation for not having to listen to this guy, to dismiss this guy, to treat him as less than human. Is, is the assumption of his birth being into sin. But the only one who sees Jesus here, the blind man, is the one who recognizes him for who he is, who turns in belief and falls down in front of him. He doesn't argue with him about what had happened or what day he did it on, but instead he obeys and bears witness and believes, and now he worships Jesus. But on the other hand, if you think you see, you're actually blind, and that's when your guilt remains. And so in the Pharisees here, What do we see in their response? We see condemnation that they deny the image and likeness of God in this blind man and this blind man's worthiness of God's visitation. They deny Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, saying he is a sinner and he is not from God. They're self confident about their own sight that they must be the ones who see things clearly. And spiritual blindness and darkness will lead us this way. And again, it's something that there are at least grips of in every one of our hearts. That, I mean, if if this isn't a commentary on the human condition, I don't know what is. That, That we are prone to a life full of confidence in our own perspectives. And this has gotten even worse with the faster flow of information. Because now we scroll through a bunch of Twitter headlines and think we understand everything going on in the world. And so we we are prone to think that we are wrong, and and so we get into our we don't realize how narrow our experience is, and how blind we actually are to some of the more complex and deeper realities of our lives, or how narrow our experience is. Do you remember this as a kid? And as you were growing up, there were certain things that you came to realize you had believed in your life, and they absolutely were not the case. Um, I'm going to pick a. a a more lighthearted one. <laughs> There's a few ways we could go here. Um, our kids, one of the things that has become a thing in our house is that there was one time that one of our kids was talking about yonks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was like,
0: we were like, what is a yonk? And they just kept talking about yonks and how they liked yonks. And we're like, what is, what is a yonk? And then we realized it was a York peppermint patty. <laughs> but the script looked like an end to their eyes, <laughs> and so when we figured it out, we're like, "Oh, you want this? Is a treat. Okay, now we understand." And so forever in our house, they're called Yonks. <laughs> but th- this is a moment. There are moments like this when you're growing up, where you have something set in your head as this is what this is, and then you can be confident in it. But your confidence in it doesn't make it more true. And there's moments where your eyes get open, and you're like, "Oh my gosh." I've believed a lie my whole life, I thought it was a yonk. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but this comes into such a deeper reality because we, have, we try to make sense of the world and we have an insatiable hunger to explain things, which is what we see throughout this text. And if bad, if bad things and evil things have good reasons in our minds, then we can finally rest in that and have confidence that it might not happen to us if we can figure out why it happens to other people. Leslie Newbigin says here, though, if good reason can be found for evil, then either the evil is not evil or the reason is no good. If we want to have hope of seeing our own need for a Savior, we need to begin with humility of our own blindness and what we're calling out to being obvious in others might just be yonks. But the blind man, in contrast... He doesn't turn here in condemnation. He turns in worship because worship will undo condemnation. When we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, it changes everything. It means that when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the condemnation that others have spoken over you in your life, the things that echo in your head still or have tape replays, they will begin to fade away because you'll remember that he says here, I came to judge, but that you'll remember he is the only judge of your soul, and so the judgment of others will become less meaningful. The condemnation you have over yourself, which can be the hardest let go, will begin to fade away because as you step into the light more clearly, you will understand God's holiness and grace, and you might see the impact of sin in your life more clearly, but when that happens, the gospel and who Jesus is only increases and gets bigger because you realize what Jesus has done for you more beautifully, and the condemnation that you have for others Will begin to fade away because you'll remember that everyone is gonna face one judge in the end and it's not gonna be you. And it's so freeing because we're not responsible for it. The man here isn't going back at the Pharisees and saying, I told you so, he's worshiping Jesus. And so the disciples and crowd and Pharisees think they see, but do not. They question God and disbelieve his work. They responded in cynicism and pride and in condemnation. And every single one of us is capable of this and steps into this in our lives. The same, but the same light that, once, that flooded the once blind man as his eyes were opened blinded the Pharisees and the crowds because they were stuck in their own pride and cynicism and disbelief. But Jesus here invites all of us to believe. He invites every one of us. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And if we say, well, who is it? Jesus' words to you today are, you have seen him and it is he that is speaking to you. You see him through God's word. You hear him in his words through the passage that we read. And it's an invitation to belief, meaning that, that your life will be transformed if his light breaks through the darkness of your own spiritual blindness. And like the blind man, we can understand that obedience undoes blindness, and testimony undoes disbelief, and faith undoes our pride, and worship undoes condemnation. This is why John Newton said, I am a singular and striking proof that the atoning blood of Jesus can cleanse from the most enormous of sins that his grace can soften the hardest heart, subdue the most obstinate habits of evil, and that he is indeed able to save to the uttermost. That's why John Newton was able to say and look at his own life as a slave trader and now look at what God had done in his life and opening his eyes and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Father, would you flood our hearts with the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ today? Would you expose in us our own blindness? Show us where we've fallen into cynicism and pride, questioning your work and 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 dismissing others, and would you show us within us? Would you shed light into the places that are dark? I pray that you would flood our souls with the light of Jesus. Show us the beauty of being called to greater obedience and faith and worship. Open our eyes more clearly to who Jesus is. I pray that for those who aren't walking with you, that, that today might be a day when finally they see Jesus more clearly and turn to you in faith. I pray for those here who are Christians who are walking with Jesus, that you would help us to see that we don't, we don't get it as right as we think, to have greater humility, and all, but most of all, to be more caught up and refreshed in a vision for who Jesus is. Lift all of our hearts to you in the name of Christ. Amen.